mean for Hong Kong firms. We have many factory owners here that have now sort of relocated some of their operations away from mainland China, including to Southeast Asia because of these trade disputes. What sort of impact will it have on our um, exporters here? Well, it, won't, it certainly won't be negative, but I also don't think it will be a huge positive. As you say, I think supply chains in the U.S. and globally have already been adapting to these tariffs um, in a relatively quick and effective way. And I just don't think a, a, a removal of a small su- of a targeted subset is really going to move the needle that much. Okay, Brock, thank you very much indeed. It's always great to talk to you. That's Brock Silvers, who's Chief Investment Officer at Kyan Capital. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And let's take another look at the markets for this morning in Australia. Uh, the SX200 bucking the trend elsewhere in Asia, down about a quarter of a percent. Uh, but the Nikkei 225 is very firm this morning. It's up 1.6% right now. Uh, the Cosby is up about a third of a percent. Looks like it's going to be close to um, a flat opening for the Hang Seng later on this morning when trading gets going in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. After the news, we have Back Chat with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. Just before that, let me give you an update on the weather forecast. Very hot during the day. Maximum temperature of about 34 degrees. The very hot weather warning is in force. And the outlook is for it to be mainly fine and very hot in the next couple of days. It's going to be slightly cloudier with a few showers in the latter part of this week. Uh, The temperature right now is 29 degrees, 80% relative humidity. Here's Ben Che with the half-hour news. Japan's governing coalition of the Liberal Democrats and Kuomintang appear to be on track to increase the majority in the upper house of parliament after yesterday's election. If exit polls are confirmed, the result will strengthen Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's aim to reform Japan's pacifist post-war constitution. This was the ambition of his predecessor Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated on Friday. The BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes reports. Mr Abe's old party, the LDP, is on its way to a widely predicted victory. It is possible that parties which favour changing Japan's post-war constitution may have gained two-thirds of the seats in the upper house of parliament. If so, that could open the way for the LDP to make a new attempt to get rid of the famous Article 9, which declares this country a pacifist nation. The Speaker of the Sri Lankan Parliament says President Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled the island following the storming of the presidential palace. But Mahinda Yapa Abiwardena, a member of the president's governing party, insisted that Mr. Rajapaksa would return by Wednesday when he is promised to resign. Reports suggest he's still in Sri Lankan territorial waters. The BBC's Andarasan Atharajan has more. Gotabai Rajapaksha has the strong backing of the military so far. So for him to go outside the country will not be a very suitable idea because during the civil war, which ended in 2009, he was the defense minister. Defense secretary is facing allegations of human rights violations and killings of several civilians and Tamil Tiger rebel leaders. He denies the charges, so he can be prosecuted or many other in places people would be wanting to take him to court for those allegations. So for him, at the moment, Sri Lanka is the best place to stay. 
And in tennis, Novak Djokovic has won his fourth consecutive Wimbledon title. The Serb superstar beat Australia's Nick Kyrgios in four sets, winning the fourth on a tiebreak. It's Djokovic's 21st Grand Slam title, but he said Wimbledon is still special. My first image of tennis was grass and Wimbledon, and I always dreamed of coming here, just playing in this court, and then, of course, uh, realizing the childhood dream and winning this trophy. And uh, you know, every single time, it's, it gets more and more meaningful and special. And so, I'm, I'm very blessed and very thankful to to be standing here with it, with the trophy. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. This morning until nine o'clock, we'll be talking about uh, pandemic travel restrictions uh, after the new administration suspended the policy of temporarily banning flights to Hong Kong if airlines were found to be carrying a certain number of COVID-positive passengers. Bans already imposed have been withdrawn. And... Uh, and um, Officials said the flight suspensions had caused a unnecessary trouble for Hong Kong residents. And while many sectors have welcomed the change, the Travel Industry Council said it would do little to boost the tourism sector as the seven-day quarantine requirement remains in place. After nine in the second half of the programme, we'll look at the incident which has shocked Japan and the rest of the world with the death of the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was shot at a campaign event on Friday. Get in touch. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 and we are now joined on the line by Fanny Young, Executive Director of the Travel Industry Council of Hong Kong. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, thanks very much uh, for joining us. So, so, as we said just now in the introduction, uh, the, the Council says the latest change won't do much to boost the tourism sector with the quarantine requirement remaining in place. But um, would you welcome this as a first step, I mean, the, the suspension of the flight bans? Uh, sure, definitely. Actually, uh, I mean, the whole travel industry welcomed the move. Um, well, you know, now it's just right the summer holidays, August, uh, July, and August, and mm. it has been it has been always uh, been a peak overseas students to return to Hong Kong. So the flight suspension policy creates a lot of uncertainty, a huge uncertainty for travelers, and it discourages the travel, it discourages them from travel, and also create negative impact to travel intention. Uh, you, you know, as the quarantine hotel supply is so tight, so the ban basically is penalized travelers and the travel agents because every time there's a suspension, they have to find for alternative flight arrangement, and most of the time they have to pay a high cost. And on the other hand, they have to urging for um, quarantine hotel rooms, and since the room supply is so tight, so definitely the uplift will minimize the inconvenience for passengers, and also uh, on the other hand, reduce the substantial uh, subsequent changes on flight and hotel arrangement loadings for from our travel agency. Miss Yang, good morning. I never understood the logic behind the suspension mechanism. Uh, did you ever understand it? Uh, well, I think. Um, the, the, the government clearly said about the five percent, or also the five percent uh, below the whole flight. But, but definitely, I, I, I don't. I, we really don't think it is. Um, 
is it effective and also is it useful to 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 prevent the uh, right. I mean coming in of the pandemic uh, COVID. Okay, I mean it, it sounds to me as though we were banging our own heads against a brick wall and then we've now stopped. <laughs> So, so we must welcome that. We're sure, not... sure, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and it must have, I guess, caused a lot of problem for airlines as well, having to rearrange things. And, and, and some some airlines were not uh, even bothering to fly into the city, were they, because of the the risk of their routes being suspended? Agree, agree, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. What what would you like to see actually in terms of re- removing obstacles, real obstacles? Now, how could we improve? Hong Kong is an okay. attractive destination. Uh, well, I think uh, if we we have to target uh, Hong Kong as an attractive um, uh, destination at this moment, is it's really um, I don't think it's possible. Firstly, you mean um, well, I mean moving forward as the next step. So uh, I I would think that firstly we have to cancel the flight suspension ban permanently, which will ease the airlines uh, the worries in, in on their longer term planning of flight deployment. Uh, in and out in to, uh, from, from Hong Kong. So, um, of course, secondly, we have to enhance the quarantine requirement urgently, uh, either a shortened quarantine period significantly or replaced by home quarantine for, for Hong Kong, Hong, Hong Kong residents. So at least the, the quarantine hotel, uh, supply will, will only targeted at overseas visitors. Of course, um, I mean, lastly, we have to lay down a plan uh, ASAP with um, China officials. Uh, the government has to do it to introduce a conditional, for example, to introduce a conditional quarantine-free travel for people uh, coming from Hong Kong to mainland. Well, besides they, they explore the closed uh, loop system, maybe they could also explore to start a few cities or uh, and then review what is the uh, review for, uh, I mean, extension. So maybe that is the, um, I mean, the the near near few steps that we could take over. Mm. Right, we're making the flight suspension uh, uh, suspension permanent. Yeah. Uh, so it's no it's no longer yeah. a threat hanging in the background. Right. And, and right, do something exactly. about the quiet. I've never understood. I'm I'm sorry to keep giving you my ignorance. I've never oh. understood why returning residents who test negative can't quarantine at home. Well, I, I think that is. I, I have to. I, I'm on. I'm with you on the same same. Um, I'm curious. Well, you, you know, right now, if Hong Kong citizens, they are, they, I mean, if they are, they are not traveling, all right, if they are a confirmed cases on, of, uh, of the COVID, then they, they can quarantine at home. But if they are traveling abroad and then when they return back, well, basically, they are not a, they are not a positive person at all at that moment, but, but they are required for the quarantine. I, I think it is just not logically correct, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing, sorry throw you a curveball uh, there's a lot of speculation in the media today about um color coding people's what's leave home safe so that we get to red and yellow and mm. green right. real, real, name regist- real, real name registration uh, as well how, how how do you feel about that proposal well i think um well as long as they can have a uh, I mean, relaxations on the on the quarantine policy. I mean, with this implement, we we, we the travel industry is still uh, welcoming. 
But of course, provided they have some relaxation on the other hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I'll just point out, yeah, I must uh, say that the, the previous administration did say that the reason for the flight suspension mechanism was to ensure that airlines were complying with the rules. That was the reason that was, uh, that was, the reason that was given. Right. Oh. Um, but, uh, but just um, um, interesting, the other, the other day, after the uh, announcement of the suspension of that, uh, so the ex-co-convener, Regina Ip, uh, tweeted, she said, uh, it's great news, uh, Hong Kong sees John Lee's first step to ease travel restrictions, more relaxation to come. Um, uh, Fanny Young, have you been given any indication that uh, what you're speaking of just now uh, may become a reality anytime soon? Well, we, we don't have any particular news, but uh, we also uh, heard from the from from the media, and uh, what well, I, I think I believe the uh, the shorten of quarantine period. What what the government has been, uh, I mean, uh, sharing that five plus two. I think uh, what well, that may not be significantly improve the situation. What I think is it at least three plus four, four at uh, I mean at the first stage, and then subsequently uh, more aggressive relaxation. That is what we are we are looking for. Okay, okay. We're also joined uh, now in the studio by Mark Michelson, the chairman of the A of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Good morning, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Morning, uh, so um, we, we've talked about this issue before. Um, uh, how are you feeling now about uh, the suspension of the flight suspension uh, mechanism? Well, it made a big difference personally because my son had two, two flights cancelled a few days ago that, because of the COVID restrictions and then they were lifted in time. He'd already made arrangements, but it made a big difference. And of course, it just opens it up a little bit more. Now we probably could use a little bit more. It helps, it, but it doesn't solve the issues as has been mentioned earlier, I think, in the program. Mm -hmm. And that, what, what would you like to see? What would you expect to see next? Well, the, it's a quarantine situation, yeah. right? That has to be has mm -hmm. to be changed for, for Hong Kong to become more attractive because they can go anywhere else. And a lot of people are, and a lot of people are staying there, wherever it is. Mm -hmm. Mm, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I see. Uh, reading the sports pages, I see uh, we we've lost the world championship of snooker. Um, it's certainly been postponed, and that seems to be a shame because I think we have the world's number one female player is is a Hong Kong girl, and uh, and uh, China has also players in the top ten. And similarly for the men's thing, I don't think we have the world number one from Hong Kong, but we have good players who would be taking part in a world championship. It isn't going to be here now in, in August. It might come back later in the year, but that's entirely derived from the, from the quarantine rule. The challenge is, of course, is once things go away, they maybe don't come back. And these are individuals as well and businesses. Uh, 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 Fanny Young, could I ask you about the, the hotel situation now? I mean, um, it seems that there is a shortage of hotel rooms for returning uh, passengers and uh, you know, returning Hong Kong residents coming back. Um, um, w w what's your assessment of the situation there? Well, I, I think it is really critical, especially uh, uh, from now up to uh, September. I think it is very critical to get a room. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, I think the situation can only be improved if we have a, um, I mean, less quarantine days, or, or I mean, for Hong Kong residents don't have quarantine, then maybe that is some 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 kind of uh, helping on that one. Mm -hmm. Because even though you, uh, well, frankly, I mean, the uh, hotel quarantine room it is not only for uh, visitors to Hong Kong or. 
uh, I mean, the demand is not only visitors to Hong Kong or Hong Kong residents. We we found that there's quite a number of demand, which is from um, you, you know, because the flight suspend. Uh, I mean, the flight suspension policy in China is also strict. Yes. So, uh, peop- I mean, they don't have direct flight back to China. So, uh, a lot of the uh, I mean, China uh, residents they have to go by Hong Kong. And then they they take the seven days quarantine as well, so they they need a hotel room as well. So, so I mean the demand is as much bigger than what only the Hong Kong residents or visitors to Hong Kong only, even though the transit, I should say, this way. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, joining us now on the line we have uh, Dr. VJ Danisakaran, associate professor at the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences. That's at Hong Kong University's School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. VJ, good morning to you. Uh, thanks for joining us again. So, um, from uh, the public health point of view, um, what is the next thing that could uh, safely be done in terms of easing travel restrictions? Oh, um, I mean, I really think that um, uh, travel restrictions, I think every expert in the city has been saying that the, the changing or opening up travel completely will actually not make much of a difference. Uh, it's mainly because uh, most travelers are not, not frail. You know, you don't get many frail people traveling. Uh, most people are vaccinated completely. Uh, most are tested many, many times. Uh, and I don't see any reason why we should actually put people into quarantine when they travel. Um, removing quarantine, reducing quarantine, or you know, eliminating you, your, these uh, things for airlines, for banning airlines is a good, good measure. I think it's a good step forward. And I, should, I think we should just gradually or, you know, very, very quickly uh, eliminate complete and the health center for health protection also is it's still advising people to uh, limit the number of times that they go out um, to l- limit social contacts and and um, is that going to help is, is that going to help to you know reduce this the spread the increase in numbers that we're still seeing at the moment i mean certainly right i mean so uh, i think I, I like this right so rather mm. than you know trying to uh, mandate people into not traveling not doing things not going to bar, not going to the gym um, i think these personal responsibilities i think that's when the government policy needs to change and that's the first step right like telling people advising people there's lots of COVID in the community so avoid going out if you don't have any reasons to go out i think it's a an excellent measure and it's very wise and i think this should be transferred to all other policies as well like i was i was trekking yesterday and i was looking at all these barbecue pits being covered extensively and people you know just sitting in the corner because you know they cannot enter these barbecue pits but sitting outside in a cluster and then doing their own picnic so these things are just i think useless really Uh, I mean, how long could we have to endure this situation if uh, um, obviously COVID doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon? So, I mean, we're looking at weeks or months ahead, do you think? I mean, the thing is, right, the COVID is going to continue forever. Um, So now the most recent variant is BA5. For us, it's it's, it's not that bad news because BA5 is very similar to BA2. And what we're seeing is countries which had uh, not had a big BA2, for instance, Portugal, people keep citing, which had a very big BA1 wave, seems to, you know, have increase in hospitalizations recently due to BA5. And so if even if Hong Kong misses BA5, or if it's going to be like 3,000 to 5,000 cases and go down again, there's going to be another variant which actually uh, comes up and it's going to start spreading more quickly because every other variant which is going to be successful is going to escape some sort of antibodies that everybody's acquired previously. So... Um, I mean, so I think looking at the future rather than continuing what we're doing. So there's never going to be end if we continue what we're doing at the moment because there's going to be a repeated cycle of waves of epidemics. Um, so, so the way to go forward is uh, why, why do people who, who are uh, probably
probably already infected, had clear jabs of vaccination, clear the infection, but just sit at home for seven days when they are actually turning PCR continuously negative. So these things I think people should, government should consider. Another thing I always keep thinking, right, so government wants to make its life easier, right? If you control people, um, keep them socially segregated, it's much easier to control the epidemic for the government. But at the same time, the government should realize that every action they make is actually making it difficult, mistaken, extremely difficult for many people in the community, not just for their personal lives, but also their livelihood and their businesses. So ultimately, public health is a balance of all these things. And so the public health experts have all been saying for the last month, there's no need for this, you know, troubling the public by, you know, asking them to test so many times, asking them to hotel quarantine. So it's just totally unnecessary. It's just more more um, health um, risk because it's going to still affect their mental behavior. Uh, I'm unable to recruit people in my lab, right? This is very important. We are unable to send students to conferences internationally. Mm. So there's just not simple things. These are huge uh, repercussions where if Hong Kong wants to maintain its status, clearly all businesses want people traveling all around. All right. Dr. Vijay, good morning. Given, given the largest number of the vaccination rates now, and given that a very substantial portion of the population have had COVID and have recovered, um, are we pretty much as, as safe now as we're going to get realistically? I mean, uh, I think uh, people who have uh, infected or uh, vaccinated completely, they are, they are perfectly safe, right? What the, the only people I'm really concerned is people who have not completed their dose, uh, irrespective of their age. Right. I'm, I'm very concerned, especially of people 50 plus, because people, if, you, if they're not, if they've taken their third jab, let's say eight months ago, uh, immunity wanes once you get older. And um, if you look at really elderly people, we should continually monitor, monitor them and see because there's like, you know, some elderly people, their immunity can reach or have much more faster than the others. So some people need to be monitored and, and shots taken. But the rest of the population, I'm not worried at all. Is, is the shot going to become an annual thing now? Uh, we don't know, actually. I mean, I would, I would, I would strongly think that it becomes annual or much more frequent in the elderly groups. But uh, in in the you know the normal healthy population, it may not be necessary until until there's a dramatically different a different strain that emerges. So un, un, unlike we have like you know uh, SARS-CoV-3, like people call Omicron as SARS-CoV, you know number two because it's quite different. So if you have substantially different waves uh, strains such as this then it's a good idea to, you know, upgrade the vaccine and take another shot. But uh, clearly, the elderly and uh, immunocompromised and lots of other people need regular shots. Could it be uh, combined with the annual flu shot? Oh, most certainly, actually. I think many people, many governments are already doing that, or at least recommending go get your flu shot and COVID shots, especially as a new wave of COVID along with the winter season of flu. And I've seen uh, advertisements from Australia, for instance, now they're having both the viruses circulate. Uh, many people are actually getting infected with both as well. Um, so I think it's, there's no problem at all. I think people should get both the shots together. Um, Fanny Young, uh, just refer, returning to uh, travel and uh, tourism for a moment. Uh, so we've seen yeah. the, the third airport, at the runway, uh, so the third runway at the airport is now open. OK, the second runway is closed for renovation, but um, the, the infrastructure's there. Um, is the tourism industry in a position to plan for the future, the way things are at the moment? Well, I, I think we are we are always uh, planning on on the on the future, but definitely, I mean, for the executions wise, we really it depends on the policy. So right now, actually, the demand is just not there, right? So um, I will, we are only on the planning, and and we have been always been planning for that. This is a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? Um, yes, exactly. If, if the airlines are not confident, 
of demand because they're not confident about policy, then they're not going to have the flights. And uh, people are reporting all sorts of practical difficulties. A friend of mine is trying to get to Switzerland and has got to go through Dubai and Frankfurt um, because they're going... So routes are becoming complicated because of the, the networking effect is, has gone... Yes, you are very right, and and that's why that just now I mentioned that we we need to dis, to have this uh, ban um, permanently cancelled. So for for the airline planning, it is a uh, I I mean a much easier way for them to 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 look for. I, I'm I'm very sure that the, I mean the hesitation to increase the flight uh, in and out of Hong Kong will be um, will be definitely um, I, I mean much lesser if the ban is just uplift permanently. Right now, it is just uh, temporary uplift. They, they really don't know when, well, maybe next week they said they want to impose again. So so how can they plan, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, do you think we can look forward to a, a resurgence when things are eased further? I, well, I, th- I think we're in a position to do to do much better. Certainly that would, that would help stimulate the situation. But, you know, again, once it stops or once it's curtailed, it's harder to start up. Not impossible by any means, but, but definitely more difficult. The exhibition industry, I noted, Mark, has just said, written to the government saying, look, we've lost a string of exhibitions. Some of them are going to be away forever. Uh, some we hope we can bring some back, but some have gone, probably gone for good. Yeah, it, it happens, and some companies have taken people away from Hong Kong, not moving to Singapore, but just taken away the position. They're not going to come back very quickly, at least. Okay. I have some uh, emails here from uh, listeners that I'm going to read out uh, quickly. This one from Alonso says, uh, Finally, the Hong Kong government is showing a little, I stress a little, but far from enough common sense in its decision to scrap the flight ban mechanism. For months, almost every COVID expert on your show has argued that the ban was both, one, medically unjustified, and two, ineffective in preventing the spread of new variants. While the welcomed removal of the ban will almost certainly trigger an increase in numbers of returnees, it will currently, uh, sorry, concurrently exacerbate the current shortage of quarantine hotel rooms. Hopefully the new John Lee administration will address this problem by scrapping or at the very least uh, reducing the seven-day quarantine rule which has single-handedly crushed our economy and accelerated the Hong Kong brain drain that we are suffering from. That from Alonso. Uh, This from S writes, uh, flight suspension is one thing but but to get through to Cathay Hotline is a nightmare. There is an average waiting time of one hour. And after one gets through, the staff cannot give any answers, even with simple questions. It's very frustrating for all passengers. There are numerous complaints on Facebook as well. Um, this one from uh, Nigel says, uh, this is addressed to you, Mike, says, Mike, the answer is obvious. Government doesn't trust people not to cheat. Home quarantine is impossible to police effectively. How about with those uh, wristbands that we used well, to have? That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we did at the beginning, didn't we? And that's, an, that's another thing. Um, and Jeff writes, uh, Dear Backchat, the central government has said that we could uh, live with the virus when the mortality rate was 0.1% or less. After reaching 90% vaccination and a high level of natural herd immunity from infections, have we already reached this level? Recent daily announcements are for a few thousand cases and one or no deaths. Uh, thank you, uh, Jeff. And on our Facebook, uh, Richard writes... Um, 
When the historians look back at this whole sorry mess, they will rank the flight ban a close second to Donald Trump's advice to drink bleach to cure COVID on the chart for dumbest ideas proposed during COVID. What's next? I think it's uh, quite Maybe, obvious. Dr Vijay, on that point from the uh, email, um, what is our death rate? Uh, what are the material figures there? I mean, so uh, I don't know. I don't have the exact numbers in my top of my head at the moment. But, um, I mean, like, I think we've discussed this before. We don't really, I mean, getting the overall rate of the population is not really useless for COVID because we know that it's only the elderly, the, the only the frail and the immunocompromised who are actually uh, suffering from the disease. Right. So the, if you look at these proportions, especially the elderly, the proportion is still very bad. So the numbers are really still bad in terms of the vaccination. Um, so bad news there. What, what about the, this concept of excess deaths, isn't it, that the statisticians go in for? Yeah, so I've been waiting for those numbers as well. Um, I think we don't have a really clear number um, 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 in terms of excess deaths yet uh, in the population. I've, I've, I've been trying to look at those numbers and I've, I've discussed with these hospitalised people as well. So, I mean, uh, for example, like Europe was releasing numbers like with COVID, due to COVID, and we don't really have a, such a good numbers in Hong Kong for that. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there were, I think I'm right in saying there were two fatalities yesterday, but it's down mm-hmm. to sort of one, two, sometimes quite often zero per day. So I get, I, I get the government's so press release as if I were an overseas correspondent, which is interesting. I notice they always leave, lead with a number of new cases, and uh, you do get a figure for hospital admissions, but you never get a figure for hospital discharges. Mm-hmm. Presumably, mm-hmm. some people are being admitted to hospital, mm-hmm. and other people have, have recovered and are considered can be released. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, something we can uh, look into further. But uh, we're going to have to take a break uh, in a moment for the news summary. Uh, time to say thank you very much to Fanny Young, Executive Director of the Travel Industry Council, and thanks to Dr. VJ Denisakaran, Associate Professor at the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at Hong Kong University's School of Public Health. Uh, Mark Michelson is still with us, Chair of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. After the news, uh, we'll be talking about the shocking uh, assassination of the former Japanese Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe. Um, A look at the weather. It's going to be fine today. Uh, very hot with top temperature around 34 degrees moderate east to southeasterly winds and the outlook mainly fine and very hot in the next couple of days it'll be slightly cloudier with a few showers in the latter part of this week currently 30 degrees humidity 77 percent very hot weather warning in effect that on one occasion uber's then chief executive travis kalanick gave the order You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Backchat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And in this part of the programme, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, the incident which shocked Japan and the rest of the world uh, last Friday with the assassination of the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Uh, who was shot at a a campaign event. Um, We have with us in the studio here uh, Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Um, On the line, we have uh, William Pesek, who's a Tokyo-based journalist and author, and also Dr Toru Horiuchi, a lecturer 
in the uh, Global Studies Programme at the Chinese University of Hong Kong's uh, Faculty of Social Science. Um, good morning to you all. Perhaps, uh, uh, William Pesek, if we could go to you first. Uh, hello? So, so okay, you're there in Tokyo. Um, what has the public mood been like uh, over the weekend, William? Well, complete shock. Um, I, I kind of view this moment as a bit of a loss of innocence moment for the Japanese population, right? I mean, as everyone has uh, seen in the press coverage in recent days, gun violence in Japan is incredibly rare. Mm. Uh, and for me as an American living here, um, I realize that especially so. And so the last few days have really pierce this kind of this veil of you know invulnerability if you will and uh, i think people are are, are just shocked and, and in some ways just speechless about it mm -hmm. and uh, mr abe's uh, funeral is due to take place tomorrow what are the sort of um special arrangements likely to be well i mean it's going to be a very uh very closely watched affair i imagine and you know of course security is going to be um you know, uh, sort of, um, you know, extraordinarily high um, given events of recent, recent days. But I think in many ways the Japanese public will be stopping and, you know, doing several moments of silence. You know, Prime Minister Abe was uh, a rather polarizing figure in many ways, but I do think when you see the, the turnout to the election yesterday, the parliamentary elections, this has had a somewhat galvanizing effect where I think the Japanese are shocked and saddened, but I think they're also... There's a certain resolve where they want the world to know that democracy matters in Japan and we will not be deterred by political violence. What was the impact, William, on the, on the turnout rate? Well, I mean, that's still, you know, we're still trying to sort of calculate that, but certainly turnout is bigger than, than hoped um, or expected. I think there were a lot of concerns that this would be an historically uh, low turnout election, and it actually, that you know, we, we certainly saw a much bigger turnout than politicians had expected. And the ruling LDP did do a bit better in this election uh, than they might have otherwise. I think there was a bit of a, a sympathy vote for Abe and for the ruling party. And again, I think part of it was the Japanese people coming together and saying, uh, you know, we support the government. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Horiuchi, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks um, for having me. Uh, uh, so Shinjo Abe, he, he was uh, something of a polarizing figure, as, uh, as William Pesek was just saying. But uh, I mean, the, the, a great uh, outpouring of, uh, of shock and sympathy from, uh, from other world leaders uh, around the world. What, what do you make of the response to his assassination? Yeah, I, I think it, was, uh, it would be a very big loss because he established, successfully established very close personal relations with many foreign leaders. And you can see that from the fact that many foreign leaders have expressed their uh, condolences for his death over the past few days. Mm. I think uh, we, lost, we have lost a very important foreign policy asset uh, for Japan. Mm. Mm. And, and there was a possibility of him becoming a prime minister for a third term. international media um, last night people mm -hmm. talking specifically to his style he was he seemed to be more tactile than many 
uh, other top Japanese leaders is more more willing to embrace people and, and shake their hands in in a warmer way. Yeah, I think that may have been the reason, one of the reasons why he was shocked so easily by somebody.、Uh, he could approach the former prime minister very easily without much security,、uh, and that was a very—I、uh, mean, there's something wrong with the security people there. But again, I think his、uh, his way and、uh, his success in connecting very closely with people、uh, contributed to his popularity.、Mm-hmm. I guess、uh, at least among those conservative people in Japan.、Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, you were saying his、uh, passing has、uh, great implications for、uh, the for Japan, the region, for international relations. Yeah, yes, I, I think very much so. Uh, uh, what what Willie Pasek was saying earlier today,、uh, this morning, it was a very big moment for J- the Japanese. And Ian Bremmer from the Eurasia Group last night described it as a JFK moment, a John F. Kennedy moment. Compared to the U.S., because in many ways, because of the reasons that have been described,、um, he was a retail politician, and he, he was tactile as well as as well as very much involved. But he really was was proactive. He, he believed strongly in 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 Japan's security and prosperity, and the way to achieve that was through government and through an activist government, and that was economically and geopolitically. Because he was really the prime mover behind the Quad,、uh, the the alliance that now exists between uh, Australia, uh, Japan, India, and and the United States, he he rescued the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and reformed the the CPTPP.、Um, he has, as was mentioned, tremendous relations with、uh, with various personal relations. With various leaders around the world, including Putin. I mean, not wonderful, but he actually began to make progress. But probably his closest, strangely, I guess, for Japanese leaders was with Prime Minister Modi, who he knew when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat, and worked with him closely there and sort of picked that. So, so remarkable. So he really does make make a difference. And economically, of course, he, he instituted the famous Abe Nomics. The three arrows, and you could argue that maybe all of them didn't work so effectively. But it really, was trying to transform the Japanese government, and it'd be interesting to see how how much Kishida administration now, with a fairly with a very substantial mandate,、uh, continues some of those policies, including revising the constitution, which which Abe tried to do throughout his political life and, and wasn't able to do. Is there anyone who can take his place? Individually, I think you should ask maybe people that are in Japan more、right. than that. I, there's no individual that stands out that's quite the same as. Right. Well, well, William, that's a question over to you. Well, I mean, I think that the, certainly there are power brokers behind the scenes who are probably jockeying for position at the moment. But I think the most in, in, interesting part of this. Is what it means for Prime Minister Kishida, because you know, as、um, as we just heard, he won an、uh, impressive mandate yesterday, and I think that for Prime Minister Kishida, there were a lot of concerns that Abe would try to come back. You know, Japanese prime ministers tend to last about one year, and Kishida is approaching the one-year mark、uh, in October, and I think that the Abe camp,、uh, there were you know, ch- there was chatter that the Abe camp was not very happy about the ways in which Kishida had. Backtracked on some of Abe's detente with Russia, and I think there was also concern that Kishida was talking about the need to reform the economy, which suggested that Abenomics had been a failure. And so I think, in many ways, 
there were concerns that Abe was coming back. And now Prime Minister Kishida has a mandate. He has about three years uh, to look ahead without the need for a national election, perhaps. And I think it'll be interesting to see what he does with this mandate. I hope he does reform the economy. I hope he does take steps to actually restructure the economy. Abe focused on supply side, I mean, rather on uh, you know, trickle-down economics, um, a weaker yen. But what Japan needs is some serious um, reform to make it more competitive. And I hope that Prime Minister Kishida is the man to do that. And maybe he now has the mandate. Uh, Dr. Horiuchi, what's your view on that, on the economic direction of the country now? Yeah, I think more generally, I think he may try, I mean, Mr. Kishida may try to pursue his own policies uh, economically and in terms of security as well. But, you know, there have been some signs showing that he has been moving a little bit away from the economics. Uh, he has no choice but to continue some of those economics policies uh, because of the strong influence uh, exercised by former Prime Minister Abe. So with him now gone from the political scene, maybe he will have more freedom uh, to pursue his own policies. Mm-hmm. And as uh, our colleague has just mentioned, uh, he has gained the mandate from the, from the public, uh, which can make it easier for him to pursue his own policy preferences. And I think one indicator uh, of whether he will pursue his own policies or not uh, would be the reshuffle of the LDP leadership and the cabinet as well, uh, which may take place very soon. And uh, we can see whether, for example, Chief Cabinet Se- Secretary Matsuno will stay in power or not, because he's from the Abe faction. If he leaves, that means, you know, Kishida has the desire to pursue his own policies, perhaps. And what about this question of uh, revising the Constitution? Uh, my, view, my view is that I think uh, it would not be so easy. And Prime Minister Kishida himself mentioned that within the next two years, until the end of his uh, presidential term of the LDP, uh, he wants to achieve the constitutional revision. But there, there are certain challenges, obviously. Although uh, those uh, pro-constitutional revision parties uh, enjoy two-thirds majorities uh, in both houses, uh, which of course is an impo- important uh, requirement for uh, constitutional re- revision, uh, you can expect a lot of opposition from the, oppos- uh, the other parties, opposition parties, and that's one challenge. Uh, another one, uh, I understand there are certain differences among those four pro-constitutional revision parties as well. So they may have disputes. And the final one, I think, is the biggest, biggest obstacle to any constitutional revision effort uh, is the public. There will be a public referendum, and at least uh, 50% of the Japanese people must approve the constitutional revision, which is not guaranteed. Uh, because, you know, unfortunately for, for Abe and the LDP, the people are split uh, on this issue. So I think those are the three major challenges which may make it difficult for him to pursue constitutional revision. So yeah. even if the two-thirds majority in both houses uh, is keen and get, uh, get a, a resolution forward, there's still a very strong chance that the general public will say, that's interesting, but no thanks. Yeah, I think there's a possibility. I, guess. I think people care more about their jobs, uh, economic prosperity and things like that, rather than uh, you know, constitutional revision. Mm. Uh, William Pesek, is, is that how you see things uh, on the ground there, that uh, you know, people in Japan are more concerned about economic factors than, than changing the constitution? 
Absolutely, 110%. I mean, what's happening right now is the yen this year is down almost 20% against the dollar. Uh, inflation is rising around the, around the globe. Japan is seeing some of the biggest producer price increases in 40 years. So the big concern here at the moment is inflation. It also is a sense of getting the economy back on track in terms of reforms. I think that the constitutional reform issue, um, I think Prime Minister Kushida actually could have more success in this, you know, on this front than Abe did, because I think it was perceived that, you know, Abe was a bit more nationalistic, a bit more militaristic, if you will. And a lot of people viewed Abe's push to be a bit of family business, right? His uh, beloved grandfather um, was a former prime minister. Um, and, you know, in many ways, I think people felt that a lot of what Abe was trying to do was to sort of, uh, you know, rehabilitate the family name, if you will, partially through constitutional revision. And if Prime Minister Kishida, who is a kind of centrist politician, can make the case to the Japanese people with less baggage from the past, I think he actually might have more success in getting a referendum passed. But, you know, it is a very open question. We'll see. Mark, so just to reinforce that that nationalism uh, strain, uh, Abe is from what's now Yamaguchi Prefecture, which used to be called Choshu. It was one of the two two uh, areas of Japan that was instrumental in creating the uh, the Meiji Restoration in the in the 1860s that very much changed Japan. And one of the leaders of that was Ito Hirobumi, who was the uh, first Prime Minister of Japan and was the founding father. Also was assassinated by Korean nationalists and Harbin uh, many uh, in the early uh, early 20th century, but but really was was transformational, and the whole family was related to that. And Kishinobutsuke, who was mentioned before, was prime minister, but before that, he was in the in the Tojo cabinet as commerce right. minister, as a, an advisor, and was a Class A war criminal that was. Uh, that was released in part to uh, restart the Japanese government by the uh, by the U.S. occupation. So a long history. And his great uncle uh, Sato Eisaku was prime minister of Japan in the uh, in in the uh, up through uh, up through the late late 1960s, the early 1970s, and I think was the longest serving post-war prime minister before Abe, if I remember correctly. So Kishida doesn't bring that kind of baggage doesn't bring the baggage but probably the connections and experience as well so it depends right. on how much that means anymore so here you go. Well, on the other hand you're going to have a if there is another move to amend the constitution there'll be an international reaction presumably I'm I'm not sure possibly you think China but, might have something to say China about? would have something to say how but about Korea? Be, be interesting Korea and, and Japan and China have always been very concerned, and that was one of one of the issues with 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 Abe. He visited Yasukuni Shrine a couple of times, which is where the uh, where, where which honors the the military uh, military uh, dead of, of Japan, including some of those some of those that participate in the war. Mm. Mm. Uh, Doctor Horiuchi, uh, um, yes. so relations between Japan and uh, and China and South Korea. Um, what do you think Mr. Abe's uh, legacy is going to be there? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Japan's relationship with China, um, he tried to improve it uh, through various initiatives, for example, including Japan's possible cooperation in the Belt and Road Initiative launched by China. But unfortunately, the improvement did not uh, proceed so well as he had expected, perhaps. 
major reason is that uh, it's the U.S. factor, I would argue. I think U.S. factor, you know, especially the Trump administration wanting to push back against China in significant ways, as you know. So Japan, as, uh, which is quite dependent on, on the U.S., uh, I mean, the alliance with the United States for security, has no, has no choice but to go along with the U.S. foreign policy line. And I think he uh, they produced some, or you know, created some important ideas. Most important of which, uh, I guess, is the idea of uh, free and open Indo-Pacific. And this idea created by him was adopted. He, I mean, Premier Abe, according to news reports, uh, persuaded um, uh, U.S. President Trump, Trump to use this, uh, adopt this idea. And that's why Trump started using this idea. So I think that's a significant uh, achievement on the part of the Japanese Prime Minister, former Japanese Prime Minister. And I think uh, one manifestation of this strategy uh, is the creation of the Quad, consisting of those four democratic states, uh, which are getting concerned about the right of China, mm-hmm. Japan, U.S., Australia, and India. Mm-hmm. I think those are some of the legacies that he left uh, in Japan's relation with China. And I think regarding Japan's relation with South Korea, did you, did you say South Korea? Yes. Not North Korea, right? Yeah, South Korea. Unfortunately, under his premiership, the relationship, uh, instead of improving, further deteriorated. And I think that is not the fault of Abe, I guess. Uh, because Abe himself has mentioned many times it was the South Korean government which did not follow through mm. on their promises made in the agreement. Uh, on the comfort women issue, for example, in 2015. But I think he, he tried, and he offered uh, his personal remorse and apologies uh, to those uh, so-called comfort women, uh, some of whom are still alive, alive in South Korea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a compromise on the part of the uh, former prime minister as a nationalistic politician. Going back a minute uh, to relations between Japan and India, uh, which Mark, Mark mentioned, Abe had a particular relationship with Modi. Is there anyone else in the Japanese leadership with a similar relationship? I'm not aware of it, but maybe someone else is. It's certainly not, not the same. I mean, he worked it for so long, as I mentioned, when Modi was chief minister of Gujarat, starting from there. And and they both saw each other's potential, I guess, and uh, and worked on that. And they seemed to get along very well personally. It's always hard to tell. But uh, the hugs seemed to be genuine in this case. Mm-hmm. William, anyone else there with a affinity for India? Yeah, I think that Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abe was, was singular and unique in his embrace of India. You know, I think that many politicians here tend to view the differences between the economies, the political systems, the cultures, and they see less of the, of the similarities. But, you know, to double back to something here, I tend to be a bit less, I guess, I tend to be a bit more skeptical about Abe's successes uh, in the foreign policy realm. If you think about how Prime Minister Abe set Japan up as Donald Trump's only friend among democracies, it was awkward, right? So Donald Trump's closest allies were Kim Jong-un, MBS in Saudi Arabia, Erdogan in Turkey, Duterte in the Philippines, and Shinzo Abe. Uh, It was just awkward. And Abe met with Vladimir Putin, I think, at least 20 times and got very little for it. And I think that his foreign policy credentials are, to me, a bit more complicated than the foreign media are, are suggesting. Certainly, Abe was around for a long time. 
and the global, global community got to know him better than other Japanese leaders. But I think we forget the fact that Prime Minister Koizumi in the early 2000s was also, he also cut quite a figure on the global stage, and I think Americans had as close a relationship to him um, as they perhaps did during the Abe years. So I think his foreign policy um, legacy, if you will, is a lot more complicated than you're seeing in the global media the last couple of days. Jim, i just like to also double back. I agree, and South Korea in particular, that's a key relationship. Mm. It's a key relationship for the for the U.S. and for everyone else. And it it was it was very unsettled. I don't think the Koreans would agree that 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 Abe took a took sympathetic view at all. In fact, and and even each what he was trying to do, I think, domestically was sort of move that aside, the wartime experience aside. So Japan can move on. You can understand that, but. You know, it's an approach that obviously didn't play well abroad, especially in China and, and South Korea and elsewhere. And I think that continues to be a problem, and that's going to be a challenge for the Kishida administration and his successors going forward. Mm. Well, South Korea also has a relatively new administration, do. uh, doesn't it? So, so how do you think uh, relations might go there? Well, I, I think, you know, the U.S. especially is... is trying to push this and trying to mm-hmm. trying toward reconciliation there've already been a a couple of meetings but but you know the Kishida and 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 the new South Korean president I think did not met, meet separately when they just uh, when they were just in Europe together and that you know that's not exactly a promising sign but you know the they both both sides have said that they want to move toward a, toward a more nor- normal relationship which is the t- term that that Abe used throughout his career, making uh, Japan a more normal country. He was talking about after the occupation, but also in terms of the, the military and economically in a way that was, you know, not under under control of, of some other country. And, and even within the Quad, India is still a bit of an outlier, isn't it? I mean, it's stepping up its purchases of, of oil uh, from Russia. Yeah. Uh, so it's not sort of... Uh, and not a mainstream. It's all against uh, China. They're not an outlier in China, which is what the, what the major major uh, objective is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. William Pesek, it, it is an important relationship, obviously, isn't it? Uh, Japan, South Korea. Uh, um, do, do you see any sort of prospect uh, of an improvement there? At the moment, not really. I think you know, new President Yoon is uh, still a bit of a question mark yeah. in terms of North Asia relations and. You know, I think that anything that Prime Minister Kishida can do to create closer relations between Japan, South Korea, Japan, and China would be wonderful. I mean, recently you had President Biden um, getting Prime Minister Kishida and and, uh, President Yoon in a room together. Uh, That's a step in the right direction. Uh, We need more of that. And I think that when you look at the complementarity between the South Korean and Japanese economies in the age of China, there's every reason for these two leaders to find a way to compartmentalize uh, where they can work together on the similarities between the economies, between the political systems. And I think it's, a, you know, it's an open question as to whether we'll see that, but I'm somewhat optimistic we will see a bit more, a bit more of an effort uh, to cozy up to these, you know, these, these two countries cozying up to one another. Yeah, just going back to the uh, assassination, yeah, very, very uh, shocking event. I mean, not least because, uh, like you say, uh, uh, violence involving firearms is so rare in Japan. Um, And do you think this is 
likely to have any lasting effect on Japanese uh, society or, or certainly on, on, on the way the security of, uh, of ministers and um, important officials is dealt with? You'll see a lot more security. I mean, I, I live in the Shinjuku uh, area of Tokyo, and sometimes you'll see Prime Minister Kishida come and speak near the train station. And as an American, I've always been kind of fascinated by the, the, the general lack of security around important Japanese officials. And I think you will see a, a, a very, very uh, strenuous effort um, to increase security. And, you know, it, it's, it's a sad thing, really, because as uh, we were discussing earlier, you know, Abe, as a retail politician, he was famous for shaking hands and backslapping and getting in there and holding babies. And uh, that kind of connection, that kind of physical closeness is going to be a thing of the past. And it's, again, it's, it's, a, it's a loss of innocence uh, that will change Japan uh, in a number of ways and perhaps not for the better. Okay, okay. All right, well, thank you very much uh, for speaking to us on the programme this morning. Uh, that was William Pesek, Tokyo-based uh, journalist and author. Uh, thanks very much to Dr. Toru Horiuchi, a lecturer in the Global Studies Programme at the Chinese University. And thanks very much to Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Um, just before we come to the end of this morning's programme, uh, a couple more uh, messages from uh, listeners here. Uh, talking about um, the flight suspension mechanism earlier in the programme and the situation with the hotel rooms. Uh, so Mark writes, uh, as well as a shortage of rooms, the government policy allowed price exploitation. And this continues. Um, Kinsey writes on our uh, back chat uh, Facebook page, the huge cost in time and money to hotels, airlines and residents returning from holiday, changing flights and reservations and travel plans re related to shortening hotel quarantine seems a tremendous waste of resources as a transitional measure when compared to a direct switch to home quarantine. Well, we'll be looking out to see what happens with uh, quarantine and home quarantine uh, over the next uh, few weeks. And some of us will be writing about yeah, it as well. Right. <laughs> Good. Well, we'll look forward to that. Um, uh, Howard writes, uh, way to go back chat. Instead of discussing something current like the lockdown that went into effect in Macau this morning and its possible implications here, you're talking about issues you've already discussed 500 times over the past two and a half years. Yawn. Okay. Thank you very much uh, for that, Howard. Yeah, we will be keeping an eye, of course, on what uh, goes on in Macau. Um, thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks very much to you, Mike. Uh, Always fun. We'll see you. Start we'll, the we'll week properly. We'll, yeah. we'll see you again soon. Quick look at the weather before we go to the new summary and morning brew. Uh, fine, very hot during the day. Top temperature around 34 degrees. Moderate east to southeasterly winds. The outlook, mainly fine and very hot in the next couple of days. Uh, be slightly cloudier with a few showers later in the week. It's currently 30 degrees, humidity 73%. Very hot weather warning is in effect. I'm Dr. Patrick Yu. COVID-19 vaccination is the most effective